Hi, how are you doing? I'm sitting about 15 foot up in a veteran oak. And in front of me is a field that's been newly drilled and it's got a couple of seagulls in it. And in the field behind me, they're harvesting potatoes. There's a big potato harvester, there's a tractor, and there's four men with their shirts off. I'm Melissa Harrison, and I'm the novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. Through summer and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 20 of The Stubborn Light of Things. This oak is normally a much more peaceful spot than this. It's thought to be about 700 years old and its diameter at breast height, which is how you tell the age of an oak, um, I haven't measured it, but I was just looking at it just now before I climbed up and I would estimate that it would take at least five men to join hands around it. I used to come and sit here all the time when I lived in this village. And I developed quite a strong bond with this oak. I'd sometimes bring some wine and sit and watch the sun go down. And because I was out of the sight line and scent line of animals, I'd watch deer, hares, little owls, barn owls, rabbits, all sorts. When I found out I was losing my cottage, I came and sat here and I asked the oak to help me. I know that sounds a bit woo, but that's just what happened. It was such a low point. I had done this enormous move by myself from London to Suffolk where I knew nobody found this gorgeous little cottage and I put down roots very fast because I was frightened. I told myself all sorts of stories about how the house really liked me and had been waiting for me all this time. And I did what I did when I was a child. I talked to the trees and I imagined that they liked me and welcomed me. So when I heard on the morning of the launch party for my novel, All Among the Barley, that I was going to have to leave. It was a, it was, it was a blow. It was really, really hard. And the last time I climbed this tree was 11 months ago when I was preparing to move into the cottage that I'm in now. Two really good friends, Saskia and Lucy, came all the way out here and helped me wash down the walls of the cottage with sugar soap and then paint it. 
And one evening I came here with Lucy and we climbed the tree. And we were knackered and we were covered in paint. And the strangest thing happened. A cat that I had never seen before when I lived in this village followed us all the way here and then ran ahead of us and climbed up the tree in front of us. So we climbed too and it sat with us in the tree and it got strokes and it purred and it meowed very, very loudly. And at one point it walked along a branch and startled two little owls which flew out of a hole and made off. And when we decided to climb down, it came with us and followed us all the way back to the village, took me to my gate and then disappeared. This oak tree is important not just because of how much I love it and lots of people in the village love it too, but also because they're vital for wildlife. Oaks have about 500 different species that depend on them, that live on them and in them and around them. An oak can live, well, the oldest oak in the UK is thought to be about a thousand years old. The old saying is they take 300 years to grow, 300 years to live, and then 300 to die. And during each of those stages, they are important in different ways. There are creatures that live in oaks that are 800, 900 years old that don't live on them when they're young. Every stage of their life is vital and important. Right, it's time for me to scramble down because what I've really come to show you this episode is my friends Richard and Sue's wildlife meadow. It's a five acre plot right in the heart of the village and it's absolutely wonderful. just walking up the track back towards the village. And there's some cows here. Hello. <laughs> They're all jostling each other for a look at me. I am the most interesting thing that's happened all morning. See you later. You hear that distant mewling. It's two buzzards circling on a thermal and a third smaller bird of prey that I can't identify at this distance. It looks to be mobbing them. Buzzards aren't as common here as you might think, certainly not as common as they are in the West Country. They were quite slow to colonise East Anglia and they're still something people take note of when they see them here. What also is starting to colonise East Anglia is red kites. And a pair have been seen here at my old village quite regularly. I've seen one in my new village too, but 
But there's a pair here that seem to have taken up residence. I'm really hoping to see them. Let me tell you about birds of prey. We nearly lost them in the last century. Numbers had plummeted, and for a long time no one could work out why. They were really on the brink. And slowly it began to be understood that they were being affected by the DDT that was being sprayed on our agricultural land. It was being passed on up the food chain and becoming more and more concentrated until in the bodies of apex predators like birds of prey, it was causing all sorts of complicated and unseen effects, one of which was to thin the shells of their eggs. So the broods just failed and failed and failed. The work of banning DDT was long and multifaceted. But one of the things that really turned the tide of public opinion and put pressure on the big chemical companies was when a woman wrote a book. Rachel Carson published Silent Spring in 1962. And it was a real turning point. Slowly, countries began to ban DDT. We were slow. We didn't uh, ban it fully until 1984. But birds of prey numbers began to recover. We can turn things around when we try. And we can work against powerful lobbies when we use our voices. Red kites were already in trouble before DDT. They were functionally extinct here in 1900. The first reintroduction happened in 1989, and several more followed. We now have about 10,000 birds. They are flourishing. They'll probably be familiar to you if you've driven the M4. And they've slowly spread up the M4 corridor. I've seen them over Tooting Common in London. And now I've seen them here too, in Suffolk. What an extraordinary thing. Gilbert White called red kites fork-tailed kites. And he was very familiar with them. He saw 16 together in 1771. Here are his diary entries for today. August the 17th. August the 17th, 1774. Wheat Harvest General. Large seagulls. August the 17th, 1775. Rabbits make incomparably the finest turf, for they not only bite closer than larger quadrupeds, but they allow no bents to rise. Hence, warrens produce much the most delicate turf for gardens. Sheep never touch the stalks of grasses. August the 17th, 1777. White butterflies settle on wet mud in crowds. August the 17th, 1781. The small pond in Newton Great Farm Field, near the verge of the common, is full nearly of good clear water, while ponds in valleys are empty. One swift, 
the crevice through which the swift goes up under the eaves of the church is so narrow as to not admit a person's hand. August the 17th, 1782. Cranberries, but not ripe. August the 17th, 1784. Farmer Spencer and Farmer Knight are forced to stop their reapers because their wheat ripens so unevenly. August the 17th, 1785. Few mushrooms to be found. Sowed a second crop of white turnip radishes. August the 17th, 1789. Cool air. Wheat gleamed. I've just arrived in Richard and Sue's five-acre meadow. And it's bordered on one side by the lane, one side by the river, and on one side by what's called the cancer, which is an old Suffolk word for a path through boggy ground. A section of the meadow's been mown, but a section has been left because it's going to be scythed by hand, and that means it can be cut a bit later. And that means that more wildflowers can set seed, which is better for diversity, better for insects, better for everything. But it's too big a site to mow entirely by hand. So the local farmer comes and does some of it, and he takes it a bit earlier in the year for haylage. And in return, he gives them a load of well-rotted manure. Sue inherited this land from her father. And together with Richard, they manage it for wildlife. And that's hard work. It doesn't mean just leaving it be. As well as the scything, they coppice, they build log piles and stone piles as hibernaculums and refugias for invertebrates and lizards and amphibians and snakes. They selectively manage the undergrowth and the plants here, allowing light to come through, encouraging particular species. There are grass piles, some of which are thatched to keep them dry, big open brush piles, there are dead hedges. What they're creating is an incredibly rich and diverse and dynamic wildlife habitat. And it's really precious. What they're doing benefits wildlife and it benefits the whole village. Places like this are a reminder of how much we can do, whether it's a garden or a scrap of land, a verge or even a street tree. This matters. It's not about thinking that you can save the natural world. It's about doing what you can to keep things going. The environmental activist John Osborne said, as things become increasingly chaotic, I want to make sure some doors remain open. 
If grizzly bears are still alive in 20, 30 and 40 years, they may still be alive in 50. But if they're gone in 20, they'll be gone forever. Of course we need large-scale changes, but we also need this. I'm under the trees now, come to have a look at the river. Lots of flies under here, as you can hear, in the shade. They're dancing over the water. It's very slow, very still, very brackish. Patches of green duckweed. And the light's filtering through amber on the riverbed. One of the things that I really wanted to show you here is a project that Richard and Sue began last year, around September time. They decided to do one of the best things anyone can do for wildlife and dig a pond. But this wasn't to be an ornamental garden pond. They followed the advice from the Suffolk Wildlife Trust and had it dug and then just left it. It was dug with the help of the local farmer who bought his digger and I watched it being done. And when the hole was dug, Richard climbed in and pushed in two big sticks. One was to measure the water level as it rose and fell. And the other, he told me, was a perch for a kingfisher when one came a little hopeful gesture to the future. So at first, the first things that, that arrived here, I think, were um, mosquito larva, and that's often the case. And then more invertebrate larva. And then in winter, the river flooded, because this is a, a floodplain, and completely obliterated the ponds, so the whole meadow, large parts of the meadow was underwater, and that brought in all sorts of things, including fish. <laughs> so the pond now has little fry in it. Since September last year, it has slowly come to life, all by itself. And you know what the best thing is? I'm standing now amid the purple loose strife and looking at the post which Richard drove in, which I have to say has sprouted, it is alive. On May the 31st, deep in lockdown, when Richard and Sue were both missing their families, a kingfisher came and sat on the perch. If you build it, they will come. The sun is absolutely hammering down, so I found a little shady spot to rest for a few minutes and enjoy the meadow. I used to house sit regularly for dear friends in Dorset who were also doing something incredible for nature. I wrote about it in my Times Nature Notebook column 
for August 2015. I'm in Dorset for two weeks, looking after a friend's house with a large garden, orchard and section of riverbank. I come every August, Sam's husband and scout, leaving London behind for a glimpse of a very different life. There are water voles on the river nearby, and last year I had the pleasure of watching one for several minutes while walking the family's Labrador a mile or so away. Partly because of this, my friends have recently begun to rewild their stretch of bank, so that now, in contrast to some of the manicured but environmentally sterile riverside lawns in evidence nearby, the vegetation in the lower part of their garden has been left to grow, and as two bankside willows reach the end of their natural life, several saplings, grown from cuttings, are getting ready to take their place. And since I was last here, water voles have begun to be seen at the end of the garden. Having spotted some holes on the opposite bank, I positioned a garden chair among the tall grass, nettles, comfrey and greater willow herb, and returned later that afternoon with binoculars and a glass of wine. I tiptoed cautiously to my viewing point, but not cautiously enough. Two splashes and two arrowing shapes to the shadows of the far bank. A pair of voles had dropped from an overhanging willow branch where they were feeding and swum away. I'll go down every day while I'm here, in hopes of seeing them again. These round-faced, chestnut-brown creatures are so charismatic that it's no surprise they inspire such enthusiasm in so many. Yet for all this good feeling, water voles are Britain's fastest declining mammal. Loss of habitat is a large part of the problem, as ditches and channels are clumsily dredged and streamside vegetation cut back by landowners and local councils. Predation by mink is another factor. A clear national picture is needed to help find ways to reverse their loss. Volunteer surveyors are asked to register with the People's Trust for Endangered Species at ptes.org. As well as the busy voles, the garden here dances with butterflies while dragonflies and azure damselflies flicker over the water and grass snakes bask among the vegetables. Making sure their little corner of Dorset is a home for wildlife as well as people is an act of true stewardship and I admire it immensely. Since I wrote that column, Joe and Tom have set up a little trail cam on the riverbank and water voles are being regularly seen there. Gives me hope. Same with the kingfisher here on the pond. Same with the fact that I heard when I was walking to the meadow this morning that the red kites in the village bred this year and had three chicks. Hope is about leaving the door open, like John Osborne said. It's a brave thing to do, to hope. It leaves you open to disappointment. But it's important. Cynicism is easy and lazy, but so is blind faith. Blind faith that someone else is going to sort things out is dangerous. So is despair. They both lead to inaction. Hope, for me, is an active process. It's about knowing that you do have agency. You can make a difference.
but also knowing the limits of that agency. If you think that you can save the world, whatever that means to you, or you think that you can save another human being, you are likely to exhaust yourself and burn out. That doesn't mean you can't do anything. Hope is allowing the possibility always of redemption. This week's guest is someone I've wanted to shine a light on since the very first day that we had the idea for this podcast. And it's my brother, Corin Harrison. Corin was one of the original seven trustees of a community garden in Farnham called Space to Grow. It was once part of the grounds of an old vicarage. And in 2016, Corin cleared the acre, um, built a hut and created a wildflower meadow. And it opened to the public next year in 2017. What happens at Space to Grow has the potential to transform lives. And I'm so proud of my brother's hard work and dedication. Because he is someone who has also transformed his own life. Corinne is a recovering alcoholic. Alcoholism devastates lives. And physically and psychologically and socially, it is one of the hardest things to get out from under. But it's not impossible. To change your life in the way that my brother has is extraordinary enough. To find a way to turn your experience to help others is something I find so inspiring. When I think back to how hard things were 15 years ago, what really strikes me is this. You don't know how things are going to turn out. You may think you do, but you don't. Just about to enter space to grow through a large oak wooden door which is set into a beautiful reclaimed brick wall. The first thing many people notice when they walk through the door is a sense of magic. Um, it's hard to describe, but there's definite calmness here. The garden has a lovely natural flow to it, and as I walk down this gravel path, on my left-hand side I have a cottage garden, and to my right there's a Mediterranean garden which has... Uh, lavenders growing in the gravel path and vines uh, growing up the lovely reclaimed brick wall. The project has many different facets to it of which gardening is probably the main part and everywhere I look around the acre there's evidence of people's little individual projects maybe a, a bed they've made themselves or a vegetable plot that they're tending. On the Monday when full lockdown came into effect in, in March, I can remember just packing a, a few belongings into a bag, getting in the car and heading for the acre. I moved into one of the cabins that we have here on site and um, I lived there for the next 51 days. It was always my belief that the acre would open one day and I had to believe that that one day would be tomorrow. Um, and therefore, even though we couldn't have volunteers working on site, I'd do everything possible to make sure that the garden didn't suffer. 
It's been a very strange summer, as normally um, by now, Yaker will have been filled with quite literally hundreds of people over the last few weeks. Uh, but this year, our numbers dropped to zero overnight. Three weeks ago, we came up with an idea called Afternoons on the Acre. And this has allowed people who are in social bubbles to come and book the Acre for an afternoon and have it exclusively for their own use. It's been a tremendous success and we've had about 15 uh, completed uh, Afternoons on the Acre events so far where families or bubbles have come along and they've enjoyed a picnic or a barbecue uh, together, safe in the knowledge that um, this environment is clean, it's safe, it's just beautiful. As a small charity, of course, we're, we're worried about what the future uh, is likely to hold for us, especially with so much talk about there being a potential second lockdown. But we're already planning for that and looking to host events safely during the autumn and the winter. We know that post-Covid our garden will be in even greater need than it ever has been before um, as people perhaps struggle with mental health issues or substance abuse or, or just a myriad of issues which perhaps they didn't realise they had or were hiding. We will survive because there's a, a real spirit about the people that come here, a real need and a passion to make this uh, acre work and it does what I've missed most this summer um, what's been absent have been the, the voices the voices especially of the small children that come and use us each week with their forest groups um, the acre comes alive when filled with their voices as the church strikes three o'clock you can really feel the peace and the harmony here Sometimes, sometimes things don't go after all, from bad to worse. Some years muscadel faces down frost, green thrives, the crops don't fail. Sometimes a man aims high and all goes well. A people sometimes will step back from war, elect an honest man, decide they care enough that they can't leave some stranger poor. Some men become what they were born for. Sometimes our best intentions do not go amiss. Sometimes we do as we meant to. The sun will sometimes melt a field of sorrow that seemed hard frozen. May it happen for you.
This week's poem was read by my friend, the actress and voice artist Helen Ayres. You can find out more about Space to Grow online at space2grow.space.